Blog Talk Radio. Live from Southern California and broadcasting worldwide on Wealth Radio. A tax lawyer prescribing a dose of truth for entrepreneurs. A voice of common sense for the small business owner. And don't get him started on saving taxes. This is the Mark Kohler Show. Mark Kohler Show. Kohler Show. Well, welcome everybody to today's show. My name is Mark Kohler, here with my amazing co-host, Matt Sorensen. Hey Mark, always a pleasure, excited for today. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great show, and we want to thank all of you that are listening in, maybe new listeners out there. This is a show about protecting our wealth, growing it, building it, better living the American dream, maybe saving a few taxes along the way. I mean, we're doing it all, right? Yeah, we're we're trying to touch it all. We're talking about... You know, creating wealth today and some personal financial planning, which I'm actually excited for. We have an awesome guest today, so um, a lot to learn this afternoon. Um, and oddly enough, I was just talking about the topic of our discussion today with my mother-in-law, who's in town. So uh, I know it's on the minds of a lot of people. How do you build wealth and plan for retirement? Well, just the fact you're having a positive conversation with your mother-in-law, I count that a win, Matt. <laughs> already ahead. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, well, and you know, if if some of you are listening here and you're thinking financial planning and blah blah blah, let me say this: this is a really important point. When I can't count how many small business owners I meet, and I say, "What's your retirement plan?" and they say, "It's my business. I'm going to sell my business someday, or I'm going to make more money doing this or that with my business," and I've fallen into the same trap, too, a little bit. I haven't diversified enough. You know, we think our business is going to be there to take care of us, but we can't put our eggs all in one basket. Yeah, and that is a a common problem amongst small business owners and entrepreneurs. And, you know, the guest today, Todd, I've actually been to his website. It is an awesome website. I'll just give a a major plug to that before we even get into that. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about some of the stuff on the website, but from calculators and stuff, it's a very good website. Um, it goes over a lot of important issues that are common stuff that everybody's thinking about. Small business owners, not small business owners, but um, we'll be focusing a lot on the business owners today. But it's stuff yeah, really that yeah. everybody has to know and understand and implement. It is. Um well, I'm excited. Now, that'll come at the uh, bottom of the hour. So until then, let's go through some of our regular updates, if I may. Uh, the first thing is uh, our newsletter that just came out late last night. Every Tuesday night, the newsletter's out with some new articles. But first, some important deadlines. Everyone, please listening, even if you're listening to this on a recording, uh, recording in the next few days, corporate tax returns are due March 15th, so less than two weeks away. If you have an S corporation or an LLC taxed as an S corp or a C corporation, all of them are due by March 15th. Now, you can file an extension. Uh, It's form 7004. You can download your own extension off the IRS website. That's form 7004. 
but if you're working with our office and we're preparing your return, we'll file that for you. It's included in the cost of doing the tax return. And so if you need help, talk to Sandy Clark at the office. But folks, do not forget to get that corporate extension filed. The, it is harder and harder to get out of penalties when you don't file your LLC or corporate return on time. And the, I think the penalties this year are close to $300 per shareholder per month. You don't file your return on time unless you file an extension. So don't forget about that. Matt, you yeah, the IRS just pretty- wants you to get oh, permission, yeah. right? They just, you have to ask <laughs> for permission. Can I file late? You can't you know, ask for forgiveness on this one. It doesn't work. No, it's tough. And I was just going to say, you wrote a really unique article. When I saw what you wrote on your blog last night, I was like, hey, that's that's out of Matt's uh, normal realm of IRA stuff and a few other type asset protection. Tell us about this attorney-client privilege article and why you did that. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is an overriding issue I think a lot of people have on their mind when they call me or, you know, when they're talking to their lawyer of what's confidential, what's attorney-client privileged, you know, whether it's protecting this information I'm giving to my lawyer from a lawsuit or a creditor coming after me or the IRS coming down my throat. You know, so I just wanted to set some ground rules and make sure people understand when is that information attorney-client privileged and when are some situations where um, where you can lose that attorney-client privilege. And just a quick tip, you can go to the article for more details, but just a quick tip on that, which is um, when you share information with your attorney and have that information also given to non-attorneys, let's say you do a conference call with your attorney and your accountant, who's not also an attorney, um, but let's say, let's just say, you know, just a regular accountant, not a Mark J. Core accountant, but just a regular there accountant. There you go. Thank you. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, um, well, that is no longer attorney-client privilege because it wasn't just between the client and the attorney. There's a third party involved. And so um, you want to be careful about that. If there are really sensitive items, you want to make sure attorney-client privilege, make sure the information is just confidential between you and your attorney. If third parties need to be involved, there's a way to appropriately involve them where necessary, and I kind of go through that in the article. But I just want to set that out there for people. I know it's on their minds, and um, it's really important. It's part of the value of using an attorney, really, is you know the law wants to is built to um, give protections to people seeking advice from their lawyer and so they can speak candidly and get their issues solved, and so we protect that information when it's shared just with your attorney. Yeah, it's a, a very, very important issue. I, when I think of attorney-client privilege, I just kind of summarize it all up with uh, the movie Lincoln Lawyer. So for those of you who have not watched Lincoln Lawyer with Matthew McConaughey, classic. And uh, I was having flashbacks of the movie all day yesterday because I was on – I know this sounds crazy. I got called into jury duty. And I was trying to get out of it, and I shouldn't have. You know, I was actually – the opportunity to be on a jury is an amazing experience. It really is. Yeah. But I had so much on my plate. And so I was at the, the courthouse yesterday, and it, it was like Lincoln Lawyer all over again. I have all these you know different criminal cases and people fighting and yeah. this and that. And it, it, it was just – I got out of three uh, murder trials. I was able to get out of those. There was three that came up yesterday, and they were like week to two-week-long trials. And I was like, I can't do it, and they, they let me out of it. But – it would have been brutal. So. Whoa. You know, yeah. that could be fun. I mean, just think think of like, I mean, some of these big cases like the OJ jurors or, you know, I mean, some of these big cases that go on for like six months or a year. 
I mean, how do I? How do you do that? But anyways. Yeah. Oh, well, man, you, it's big money. You make fifteen dollars a day as a juror. I don't know if you know. Oh, that's big money. Well, you know, if you get in a big case, maybe there's a book in it. At least if the media is interested. But, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, that's right. There might be on TV, maybe. There you go. Well, um, before we get to our tips here, uh, again, the newsletter that goes out every Tuesday night, if you haven't had a chance to sign up for it, please go to kkoslawyers.com. There's five websites involved with our family of firms, the law firm, accounting firm, Matt's website with sdirahandbook.com, markjcolor.com, and then, of course, the 401k company. So on any of those websites, you can sign up for the newsletter. You get a free ebook. Uh, that's phenomenal. Uh, different ebooks, uh, Matt's site versus mine. So please check uh, those out and sign up. But there was also a video on how to buy real estate in your IRA. A little video I shot. I know that I, uh, I'm not the expert Matt Sorensen, but I had a little two-minute tip that was uh, it was an area lacking on my YouTube channel. But there was a there's a problem with the link. So if any of you want to watch that just two-minute tip on some real estate in your IRA strategies, please just go to YouTube and. Search Mark J. Kohler, and then um, you'll, you'll see the, my channel and all the videos. And the most recent one is How to Buy Real Estate in Your IRA. And please subscribe to the channel. I'd love to have you follow every week. I try to do a free video on a topic that can be helpful. I know Matt was just in the studio last week. So we've got some videos coming up from you here soon, Matt, as soon as I get through editing, right? That's right. I'm, I'm a little behind on the editing. But, yeah, that's right. We do. I've got some stuff shot and ready to go. Well, shot, ready to be edited. And, you know, it's in the can. It, in the industry, we call that it's in the can. So, in the can. Yeah, I'm learning. Yeah, so, yeah. So I'm here near Hollywood and Orange County, so I can. I, and I watch yeah, the news. I watch extra. Yeah. Uh, you just absorb okay. that information, so it, that's yeah. how it works. <laughs> there you go. Now let's jump over to our legal tip. Uh, we, uh, Matt, why don't you bring out Lee for us? All right, we got Lee Chen, attorney in the law firm over there, across the hall from Mark J. Kohler. So. Uh, Lee, what do you got to say for a legal tip for us? Hey, Matt, Mark, great to be on the show again. Um, today, I want to, you know, we have a lot of uh, new um, clients coming in right now wanting to get into real estate and, uh, you know, wanting to set up their entities. And, uh, you know, Mark's got a great uh, YouTube uh, two minute tip on his uh, YouTube channel about when to set up your, your entity. Um, but I always get the question from new clients as to, well, you know, um, I, you know, I'm just getting into my first deal. I want to make offers on a property. Should I set up my entity now, or or should I just put it in my personal name? And so I wanted to, and and I offer this tip to a lot of people um, when they're just starting off um, to kind of maintain that flexibility, you know, if they're not sure that they're going to get this deal, uh, and that's yeah. using an assignment clause. All right, so when you're going to purchase a property, um, give us an idea of what that looks like in the contract. Yeah, so, um, you know, when you're starting to get your first deal, you know, uh, you know, we tell people, you know, um, you know, the, the entity is going to get you asset protection, possibly tax savings, you know, but it costs money. So, um, you know, we'd right. like... California to, wants 800 bucks a year, too, right? Yeah, this is especially yeah, that's in the California. beach tax, so... Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you got the yeah. beach, so... Well, there was snowing on the beach yesterday, and there was people uh, snowboarding on the beach um, in Huntington <laughs> Beach yesterday. But that's oh, okay. another another for another day. 
Um, but what we tell people who are just starting off, who don't have an entity, but they want to, you know, get their deal, you know, they they want to make sure that they have their deal in place before they set up their entity is mm-hmm. when you make your offer, okay? You can make it in your personal name. That's fine. But in your offer, um, as the buyer, if you're making the offer, we want your offer to be made as, let's say I'm making the offer and I haven't set up my entity. I want it to be Lee Chen as or, and or assigns, okay, meaning you know someone that I may assign it to in, in the mm-hmm. future. And then let's put a clause in the contract, you know, like in, you know, there's sometimes there's blank spaces in the uh, in the in the contract, or you know, you can put it in as addendum saying. The buyer has the right to assign all rights and obligations under this contract to the entity to be formed before closing. That way, that's important. That's really important that gets added because I see that a lot of clients will just write, and you know, some real estate will just write and or signs, you know, you know, John Smith and or signs, and then the body of the contract usually has an assignment clause section that says, sometimes you know, I'll see this. You know, a uh, buyer can assign the contract with seller's approval. And so it's imp- really important that second paragraph you mentioned gets added in so that it's clear that you can assign. You don't have to get the seller's approval to your to your entity to be formed. Yeah, yeah and I, I think another – yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Not, let me ahead. just interject here one thought too is that on when to set up the entity, this is so important is that uh, just to add to this whole issue of – do I have to have the entity before I write the offer? And of course, having this clause in there is your escape hatch so that you can uh, do the transfer before closing or have it closed in a different name. And depending on lending, you may just close in your own name and then deed it over to an LLC later. But there are a lot mm-hmm. of scams in this. And this relates to the article that I wrote, in the, in, ironically, in the, the newsletter today, Five Myths about asset protection in your business. And this is where the scare tactics are out there. I literally just had a client uh, yesterday come in as a new client that had three... Matt, this will make you sick. I mean, we're just, I was just... You and I talk about this Thank all the you. time. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't want to <laughs> make you sick. Literally. But this will frustrate you. <laughs> um, but I, I had a client, a new client come in yesterday, three entities set up in Nevada as a California resident... And she goes, I'm on Social Security disability income, and I just went to this seminar, and there was a company that has the word Nevada in their title that set up three entities for this woman, close to three to $4,000 in legal fees. And she's like, am I going to pay the $800 tax in California? And I only have one rental. What do I do? And I was like, oh, my I just wanted to throw something through the window. So, But here's what happens, everybody, is that there's these sales tactics out there that you have to have your entity before you even write the offer. And that's not the case. Who knows where you're – you may write three offers in Georgia, two in Tennessee, and one in Oklahoma. And then the offer that comes through is Tennessee. Well, then let's pull the trigger. Let's get the LLC done. It can certainly be done in time for, right before closing or immediately thereafter. And I, I think, Lee, this is great that you're putting the clauses in the contract so that you can take your time. Don't. It, it, wouldn't it, in a perfect world, wouldn't it be nice to have our entities set up before we do offers? Yes. But if we're just getting started, I think so many people get a taken advantage of in this area. 
Absolutely, Mark. And I get this question all the time. So I thought it was really appropriate for me to put that out there for all the people who are, you know, people who are, you know, putting in their first offer or maybe thinking about getting into a partnership. You know, you can always just put get the offer in. But leave that room in there for you to uh, change that buyer in that contract before closing using the assignment clause. All right. Well, thanks so much, Lee. Great tip. All right. Thank you, Lee. No problem. (laughs) And Lee, we should mention, is also a licensed broker as well as a lawyer and a real estate investor. I'm trying to keep up with him. He's got more rentals than me. I love this guy. So, folks, if you need some help. You're working on your contracts on real estate. Lee knows his stuff. You can reach him at Lee, L-E-E, at KKOSlawyers.com. That's Lee, L-E-E, at KKOSlawyers.com. Thanks, Lee. All right. Well, we also have a tax tip today. And wouldn't that be perfect timing with tax season? So we were able to rip one of our superstars away from his desk to just walk around the building in a foot and a half of snow in Cedar City. And that's the one and only Chet Dalton. Chet, are you okay? Are you freezing outside, getting some fresh air, calling into the show? (laughs) Yeah, we're doing all right, uh, Mark. We're just uh, trying to let it melt here the next couple days. But, yeah, we've had our fair share the last two weeks for sure. Well, well, it makes you feel let it melt. Huh? Let it melt. That that's not like let it snow, is it? <laughs> I don't remember that part of the uh, of, of the movie. But. I think it's on the sequel. <laughs> let, it let it melt. melt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Well, we appreciate. We know how busy you are with uh, your files that you're helping with clients around the country doing tax prep. Um, Chet is one of our personal tax consultants that helps has been with us for years and does a phenomenal job. So, Chet, what's something you've seen in the last week that you wanted to share a little tax tip with us on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you kind of touched on it here at the beginning of the show, and more or less today, I wanted to just briefly talk about extensions. Um, As you uh, spoke about earlier, we've only got about 13 days until we hit the the federal tax deadline for S-Corps, C-Corps, and uh, it's important that we get those those extensions in to prevent any late filing. Um, Like you said, that they're starting to uh, hamper down quite a lot on those uh, on those penalties and not really letting them slide like they used to. Um, in some cases, we can get out of a, a one-time penalty abatement, but uh, you do that again, and, and they'll certainly stick you with it. Um, so I wanted to reiterate that if you had a, a started a new company, a new S corp or a new C corp, in the past year, and you plan on using us to, uh, for tax prep. You need to get our, your information to us ASAP. Well, let me mention a couple other things I think are important that people don't realize. Is this is a, this on this note? So many people say, "Oh, well, I set up an S corp in November, or December, or October, and I didn't make any money, so I don't have to file." Oh, no, 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 no. This is not like an individual, where a person, an individual, if you make less than six thousand dollars, it's actually sixty-three hundred dollars this year. You don't have to file a tax return. That's your standard deduction. So if you make less than 6300 no 1040 I don't recommend that. I think it's good to get the return in because the IRS is like an old boyfriend or girlfriend. They just want a phone call. They just want to touch, you know, kiss and a hug, send them your return. But um, with an S-Corp, even if you don't have income, you still need to file. So you'd file a zero return, but the penalties are the same whether you have income or not. So make sure 
that you uh, still file. And the second tip is you actually reduce your chances of an audit with an extension. So many people say, oh, my gosh, Mark, I don't want to extend. I don't blah, you know, I've got to have it done. There are, some people that are coming from the W-2 corporate world think that April 15th is, uh, you know, the end of the world if I don't file. But um, close to 60% of folks, re, uh, business owners, I think the percentage is even higher with business owners, of course, is that you filing an extension reduces your chances of an audit because uh, the IRS is jumping on all those suckers that already filed. So don't don't stress. The, the, the rates, they say, are 15% or, sorry, 15 times or 1,500% less chance of an audit with an, extent, uh, with an S Corp, and then you reduce your chances of an audit further by extending. So oh, not, not a bad deal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one other item I'd like to bring up, Mark, is uh, with extension, especially for our clients in the state of California, we talked a little about the beach tax that Matt mentioned, the California franchise tax. Well, keep in mind that uh, that amount is due for the 2015 year by April 15th as well. So if you plan on extending, let's uh, ensure that we send in a payment to California as well for the 15 tax year. Great point. And I think um, in our next newsletter or two, we'll be giving some of those other state deadlines. So it's not just a federal extension. If there's a state fee that's due um, before uh, March or April 15th, that'll be in the newsletter. This time of year is so, so important, again, that if you're getting the newsletter, that you click on that link and just scan it and see if there's something that affects you. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Chet Dalton, thank you for joining us. Good stuff. I guess you can go back and get close the door, and they'll put some food under it for lunch, and you can just get back to work, huh? That's right. We're headed back to the trenches here in just a little bit. All right. Well, good stuff. Thank you, Chet. Thanks for having well, me. Well, thanks, Chet. Um, Matt, you were just commenting. Our guest that we're going to be introducing here in a moment, um, boy, I, he spent some bank on his website, did he not? I mean, this is... Right, that's a cool sweet stuff. website, and there's actually really good content on it. It's not just something that looks pretty. So, you know, I have a quick little news item, though. I want to give a little, you know, in the news update here. Um, oh yeah, if you'd uh, if you'd give me that pleasure. Oh, you're absolutely <laughs> fine, sir. Uh, thank you, sir. So, uh, every, as many of you may know, if you're listening to the news or reading the newspaper, the, we are back in court on the Affordable Care Act, or otherwise known as Obamacare. Supreme Court is hearing arguments on a case. Have you been following this, Mark? I've I've seen the news headlines. I have not read the detail yet. It's like watching sausage made. I just want to wait till they're done. But uh, right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Just get the maple on it, and then let me know when it's ready. Uh, yeah. Well, well, I just want to give a quick update on what that is and why it's important. Um, you know, what's happened is, as we know from the Obamacare law, Affordable Care Act. You know, depending on what side of the fence you're on on this issue, um, there is a subsidy for low or middle income individuals who purchase health care insurance through the exchange. And if, you know, the exchanges are created, and there's state exchanges, and there's a federal exchange. Now, there's about 13 states that did their own state exchanges. And if you're one of those 13 states that did their own state exchanges, you don't need to worry about this case. But the other 37 states, you know, most of us out there, who um, essentially relied on the federal government's exchange, 
what's happened is there's a there's a group contesting the law because the law says that subsidies are only allowed to people who purchase insurance through a marketplace established by the state. And they're interpreting the word state to mean, you know, one of the 50 states. And so um, if the plaintiffs are successful in this case, and this has gone all the way to the Supreme Court, so there's, you know, there's some validity to this. This just wasn't kicked out of the lower levels. I mean, this has made it all the way to the Supreme Court. If the plaintiffs prevail on this, what's going to happen is for those who people who reside in the 37 states that um, purchase insurance through essentially a portion of the federal exchange, they will no longer be able to receive subsidies as part of the Affordable Care Act, which was a huge part and really the foundation in many respects for the Affordable Care Act. So um, there's a lot riding on this case. Who knows which way it's going to go? Who knows if Congress will try and fix the law and change the definition? But um, it's a pretty significant case. The, the consequences would be really uh, big for those who receive a subsidy, otherwise known as a tax credit, <laughs> for um, purchasing insurance. And again, this would be for lower middle income persons who receive that subsidy when they purchased health insurance. Well, and I think you're being generous saying lower or middle income. You've got to be below the poverty level before you're going to see this. And I know many of our listeners. I don't um, think so. I don't think so. (laughs) I've been surprised that the people who get uh, subsidies and exchanges in the middle income range. Oh, really? Okay. You're not getting it for free, but you're getting a partial partial subsidy. Yeah, a few bucks. That's a good point. I should say you're not getting the insurance for free, but you might get a few dollars here and there. You know, on this note, I'm just going to say this quickly here, too, is that um, just this week we had a client that estimated their income when they got insurance last year in order to get the subsidy or a portion thereof. Then we have now started doing their tax return, and their tax return actual income is higher than they estimated. So now they have to give the subsidy back. Uh, And that was uh, a flurry of emails we had because that's the first instance in our office where we had someone that their estimate was actually off to the point where they have to give some of that back. So the subsidy can come back to um, bite you. But, you know, yeah. it's always better to make, make a buck than rely on a handout, I think, in my opinion. So get out and make some money. Wow. Amen. So, yeah, amen. So well, that, that's, I, and again, what's, that's what's in the news now. It's what's in the news yeah. now, Mark. Just well, and I think the best, update. Yeah, the best health care plan is not Obamacare. It's Kohler Care. Uh, and if you've had a chance to watch my, my healthcare planning strategy videos and uh, been in a workshop, at least a day-long workshop with me, you know how we talk about Kohler Care and the health savings account, the health reimbursement arrangement, itemizing, uh, not for you, and uh, how to write off your insurance premiums. There is so many strategies that you can and games you can play with healthcare. So don't feel like you're um, just a pawn. Uh, as a small business owner, you have a lot of options with healthcare planning. Um, well, this brings up, uh, again, back to our guest here. We're near the bottom of the hour, so let's bring him out. I see that he's on the line, and we are so excited to have Todd Traceder, or and I'm, he's going to have to help us with the pronunciation of his name as soon as we get him out here, but until then, we're going to roast him and talk about <laughs> how awesome his website is. <laughs> um, Matt, I mean, I, this this. This guy's got his stuff together. Um, so many different books um, on different topics, such as how much do I need to retire, the 4% rule. This entire fin- financial mentor um, um, series is just amazing. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of this is questions, you know, we're going to get into that you've definitely thought about. Um, as I went through Todd's website and, you know, was starting to to dive into some of these things, he does a really good job about hitting the issues and items that you're going to face. I mean, you're going to have to make decisions on these issues and uh, give some good ideas, I think, on how to handle them. So I'm um, excited to have him on and, and hear some of his ideas. Yeah, and just one other um, uh, introductory point is that he's a financially independent uh, financial advisor since uh, age 35 through investing, not marketing, unlike many other financial gurus that make their money through uh, marketing courses and books. Uh, Todd has built his wealth through actual investing. And for the small business owner, this is an important point, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, is looking at your options to supplement your business as your primary uh, retirement. And we've got to be careful as small business owners that we don't fall into that trap. So without any further ado, uh, Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, so Todd, did Mark get your your last name right? It's Tresseter. Tresseter. So you're close. Not Tresseter, Tresseter. (laughs) Very impressive. I like it. very noble. So, Todd, thanks for, <laughs> for joining us, and I apologize for mispronouncing your name. And thanks I, for being I, here. I heard a lot of comments, but I've never been called noble before. <laughs> well, well coming from like Mark Holler, it means a lot. So, yeah, yeah. There you go. No, I, you know, just watching Downington Abbey, and uh, it sounds uh, like you're going to get knighted someday, like a British name sounded really good. But so, Todd, this is we are so grateful to have you here on the show, and I know you consult with a lot of small business owners, um, and, and Matt and I will be just hopefully bringing out some of the the comments and strategies that you speak about on a regular basis. But we really are grateful that you're here to share some insights. We want to uh, send people to your site to to learn more, of course. But um, I wanted to start off and just ask what you see is that, if I could, that we kind of presented this early on is that the challenge of the small business owners, they don't think about financial planning as much as they should because they think of their business as their retirement plan. Um, what are your thoughts on that and the challenges that an entrepreneur faces when they're trying to ultimately retire and they and they don't maybe have a plan? Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, when you're building a wealth plan, business is a great asset. It's one of three asset categories, and it's one of the best wealth-building vehicles, entrepreneurship and building your own business. But there's two others that you want to take into account, which is real estate as well as the paper asset categories. And when I'm working with a client, a really sound plan will usually involve at least two of the three categories and sometimes all three. Um, They don't need to be mutually exclusive and I think to introduce them as mutually exclusive into your plan is to introduce risk that you don't want to put in there. Oh, I like it. The word risk, that's a that's a loaded term. I love that. And a lot of people don't understand. And risk is... uh, I guess, subjective based on uh, the age of the individual, how much income they have. And, um, well, there's inefficiency in it, too. Like, just take, for example, you were mentioning real estate earlier when you guys were talking. You know, somebody who owns their own business, a uh, very common strategy that, you know, with your accounting background, you're well aware of, which is that owning the real estate that your business is housed in. Um, and so now you're incorporating another aspect in, and then that real estate can be used for passive income once you retire. Or it can be leased back to the the owner that buys the business from you. Excellent idea. I love that. Um, well, Todd, I think um, 
a lot of our clients, and I, I think of a lot of businesses that a lot of our clients run that are so dependent on that owner, they don't have something they can sell in terms of a business. It may be very service-oriented, very unique to them, or if it is something they can sell, it, you know, there not, may not be a lot of value out of it. So whether you know they may be a real estate broker or you know a dentist or a chiropractor, and there might be some little book of business they can sell, but it's not something that you know they're going to retire on. Um, and I think that's a, a great idea. I think um, as a starting point. Um, if you have a business that operates out of an office, find a way to buy the office space you're in rather than paying some other landlord. You might as well pay yourself and end up with an asset at the end of the day. Yeah, and another thing that they might want to think about is how to convert the business into long-term cash flow streams. So, for example, if they're a real estate broker, maybe they can package up some of their expertise into a book series or a product that educates up-and-coming real estate brokers on how to do better at the business. So there's ways to think about how to transition yourself into some passive cash flow streams or semi-passive that uh, can replace that earned income. Because as you said correctly, when you've got a service business, it's basically a self-employed job. Well, and I'm going to be the naysayer here for a minute. Let me throw this out. And, and just I think this is a common feeling that entrepreneurs have. I certainly have this. I'm not going to lie. Is that as an entrepreneur, man, your income's constantly up and down, and trying to find that extra um, income or um, that we can pull out of the business to do some of this is a constant challenge. As an entrepreneur, you're just using the next month's revenue to pay off last month's debt, and and you get into this cycle where it's really hard to 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 pull that money out and do something. How do you, Todd? What do you? What do you tell the entrepreneur that's facing that vicious cycle and, and, and doesn't know how to extract income? Well, I don't lie. It's hard. If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? If, uh, if yeah. wealth was an easy thing to do, then everybody would achieve it. But the stats are clear. A lot of people don't achieve it. And so it is hard. We don't mince words. Um, if you're dedicated to wealth and you prioritize if – you're, if you're dedicated to your financial freedom, then you prioritize – how you allocate your income and how you allocate your time, your scarce resources, which are income and time to produce the goal or outcome that you're seeking, which in this case is financial freedom or wealth or secure retirement. And do you have a percentage that you normally I, – I mean, and everybody's different again, but do you sometimes tell people, take X percent off of your monthly draw or take X percent off of your gross sales and let's just set it aside, out of sight, out of mind. It, I, do you have any some simple little way to start getting people into that habit? One other thing that's unique about the way I teach these things is I don't have a right-wrong where there's a fixed percentage, which is common what you'll see on the Internet and what experts talk about. It really depends on your goal. And so I have a post up on my site, which is how anyone can retire in 10 years or less, and it kind of explains how I did it. And in there is uh, the numbers. It actually provides the math of what savings percentage you need as a percent of your income, right, to result in retirement by a given date. So the tables are actually in there. And so it really depends on your goal, how aggressive you want to be. There's people who, quote, unquote, retire or achieve financial freedom, if you want to call it that, at really low levels of income. I'm talking 7000 20000 a year. These people exist. And so they can do it relatively quickly, but, of course, they're living much lower on the hog, if you will. And there's other people who want to much higher level of financial independence, and they're willing to pay a bigger price to get there. So what's 
unique where I come from is there's no right, wrong answer or a specific set number. It depends on your goals, and you've got to make the math match it. Todd, this is. Uh, um, I want to focus on this 10-year, how to retire in 10 years or less. I know you got an article on your website, which is financialmentor.com. But, um, you know, this is something I've done. I've done a 10-year financial plan. You know, I try to chart out. I'm not trying to retire in 10 years, but I just have a 10-year plan and some goals. Yeah, of what yeah I hold it. This is do. news to me. Am I am I losing my partner in 10 years? I'm sorry. What's going on here? <laughs> I, I, I did caveat that I do not plan to retire in 10 years. But I, okay. I got right. goals. I got goals, Mark. All right? Okay. All um, right. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think I'm my, causing my problems job. here. Yeah, <laughs> Full disclosure. There, there went the buy sell agreement right out the door. All right. That's right. Lee Chan on the line. Or it might be this. Hey, at least it's not the spouse on the phone. Like, wait, you're going to be yeah. home all day long in 10 years? Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Maybe it's going to take you 20 years, honey. <laughs> no. Um, no, but seriously, okay, I love the 10 year concept because I think it's a time frame that is, you can think, you know, where was I 10 years ago? And where do I want to be 10 years from now? And it's a short, somewhat short term, but but it gives you enough time to really make an impact. But um, maybe can you? I know you know you've talked about how it's different for um, everybody. But could you maybe walk us through an example of someone? And maybe you're the example. Maybe it's someone you've worked with to kind of go through that, so we can get maybe a, a concrete example. Just give us an idea of, of what you would typically do to to achieve that. Sure. So let's just use some of the different asset categories that we just touched on. So there's three asset categories you work with, which is business or entrepreneurship, uh, real estate, and paper assets. So the simplest one for paper assets is you would have to have an extraordinarily high savings rate. Uh, it's in excess of 70%. So you'd have to save roughly 70% of your income. And let's just use dividend stocks as an example. Let's say you've got dividend stocks paying 3%. So that's an income stream you would never outlive, and historically the growth of dividend payments exceeds that of inflation. And so within 10 years, at that savings rate, you could replace the amount of income that you're spending, which is the remaining 30%. Um, so that's an example. It's a really simple plan, and because it's such a short time horizon, it really simplifies it down from removing a lot of the factors such as inflation and other things because they don't have a time to compound out in a significant way, plus the growth of the dividend income offsets it. So that would be one example. I mean, I can go to the other uh, other examples for the other asset categories. Yeah, Is that what yeah, you're thinking? Let's, if you could, and just because I just heard you say 70% of my income disappeared and I have three kids in college this fall, so I just kind of freaked out. So that is option one for some people. <laughs> yeah, so but, the, uh, the point on that, though, Mark, is it's a function of income. So, for example, um, you know, if if you're making 50000 a year, that's obviously a non-starter, right? 50000 a year living in California, it's a non-starter. It's not even a viable option. Um, there are people in other parts of the country live on less. Um, there's some people that do extreme early retirement. You know, they live out of mo their motor home, and they do really crazy stuff because they really value their freedom. They don't want to work for the man. And so in situations like that, it is doable. It's a question of what you're really committed to, right? But for a lot of people, it's extreme. The other angle on it, Mark, is you can go for a really high income. So, for example, when I did it, I didn't suffer at all because I was in the hedge fund business, and I had a very high income. And so I led a normal life. I'd come out of college. I didn't have really high spending patterns, so I just controlled my lifestyle, never raised it, uh, took the high income and moved it over to the asset side. Um, well, and so I, it is – go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, I love what you just said. That's part of one of the principles I've been teaching more and more lately is it all starts with living within your means. If you're spending every gosh darn dollar you make, then this is never going to work, no matter what asset class you're talking about. I, th- I think that's a really good insight you just touched on. Well, let me yeah, I mean, I, I jump in here, too, if, if you don't mind. I think on the oh, – go ahead, Todd. Finish that comment. I, I, well, I was just going to play off what Mark – no, that's okay. I was just going to play off of what Mark said. I mean, you know, wealth building, people make it really complicated, and it's really simple. You can say it in one sentence. I mean, it's it's make more than you spend and invest the difference wisely. That's literally everything you need to know about wealth building in one sentence. Now, what you do with that and how you elaborate on those points are keys to whether or not you get there or not. So go ahead, Matt. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, you know, on this savings rate, that 70%, you know, that obviously shocks a lot of people. And some of you may think, well, what about, geez, 10%? I was thinking maybe, you know, I'm putting 10% in my 401k, maybe 10% in savings. And, you know, I I get with a lot of clients and they may be older. They got a couple hundred thousand dollars in their retirement account. And, but they're looking for a home run because they don't want to save at a higher rate. And I, and I think that's a big problem of why a lot of people fail is, we got this like world of home run hitters, you know, and they got they, we love the home run, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> they don't want to save their way to it. They don't want to get a bunch of base hits, you know, get some men on base, so to speak, and score runs the old-fashioned way. They just want to get up and get the one home run, get the big investment return, and but those are those are rare. They just don't happen a lot, and I think a high savings rate really gets you uh really I think gets you know money you can invest and like I said maybe gets you base hits but um I don't know do you come across that people thinking expecting maybe too high of an investment return but not saving oh, enough sure. Yeah absolutely that's a very common problem people have unrealistic expectations of what investment returns are possible um that was particularly true back at the end of the 1990s when investment returns have been unrealistically high. I don't see it as much mm-hmm. now as I did back in the 1990s. But, yeah, it's a common problem. Uh, it's a question mm-hmm. of your priorities. You know, are you committed to your current lifestyle? Or are you committed to your financial freedom? Are you committed to your financial security? And how you allocate your dollars is a function of what your priorities are. Yep. Well, and I just want to give uh, apologize for Matt's baseball references. He's down, Todd, in Phoenix, so it's spring baseball season for him. Yeah, spring, spring training's firing up. <laughs> so, so, of course, any analogy to baseball for Matt's a good one. Um, but, you know, on these base hits, Todd, I'd like to get your perspective on this. And, you know, you can shoot me down. I, I, I want you to feel like you could uh, – don't be uh, – uh, too uh, easy on the host here. We, we're grateful you're here, but talk um, from the heart. One of the principles I teach in the, uh, my re- most recent book, and it comes out again here in uh, my new book coming out in April, is that uh, I tell clients that easy base hit, and this goes over to your asset class of real estate, is to try to pick up a rental property every year just a little rental property. It could be uh, a part ownership in a deal. It could be a mobile home. It could be a single-family home rental, a duplex, a commercial building. Whatever range you can make it work for you, do it. But get into that habit of looking for one piece of real estate a year, even if it's a nobody-down, creative, subject-to-lease-option strategy, something. Um, what are your thoughts about making a goal of buy a rental a year? Am I, am I out in right field? Is that too much to ask of people? Yeah, the right field baseball analogy continues. Um, yeah, no, I, I like that strategy a lot, and I don't have any problem with it. The only thing I'm going to add is one caveat to it, which is it needs to be positive cash flow. Yes, um, very good point. Yeah. Ca- ca- cash flow, 
you know, whether you're positive or negative is a measurement of whether or not you paid a premium or a discount to the intrinsic value of the property. I feel the intrinsic value is break-even because eventually you then own it and you own a valuable asset at break-even. So you want to always be focusing on positive cash flow properties because that gives you an infinite holding period on the property. Um, and it substantially lowers your risk for, you know, period, brief periods of adversity. So uh, other than that, I completely agree. I would just throw in the caveat, positive cash flow real estate. Yeah. Well, we I have a lot of break. Oh, Matt, let me just say this real quick. I want uh, to, um, to take a break and just let all of our listeners know that we're talking with Todd, Todd Traceder, uh, author of multiple books in the Financial Mentor Series, and has a fantastic website with a lot of education and uh, information and support for the entrepreneur saving. And we're grateful to have him with us today. If any of you have a question for Todd, you can call in and speak live at 646-200-4285, 646-200-4285. Or the chat line is open, and you can also email me directly, mark at Mark J. Kohler. Uh, sorry, Matt, go ahead. Now, since we're moving over to the real estate asset category, you had your three different um, asset classes, Todd, and we kind of started talking about real estate, but um, with Mark's specific question there. But uh, we have a lot of real estate investors, you know, who are on the phone. I know you just talked about positive cash flow being a, a significant significant criteria. Um, but why else do you recommend uh, real estate, or why is that one of the three asset classes that people should be focusing on? Well, you can look at the data on how wealth is built statistically, and you'll see it's primarily business entrepreneurship and real estate. And there's two reasons for that, um, and it's two principles in wealth building. One is tax advantages, which you guys speak to extensively. Um, it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. And right. so taxes is your largest expense, and so obviously it's an extremely important uh, aspect of wealth building. And then leverage. Um, in paper assets, there's almost no practical opportunity for leverage. I mean, there are leverage plans within paper assets, but the thing about financial leverage is it cuts both ways. Um, you know, there's other principles of leverage, such as, you know, time leverage, network leverage, knowledge leverage, systems leverage, all these things that are actually existing right now in this podcast as listeners listen. They're seeing Mark and myself employ various principles of leverage just by being on this podcast or this interview. Um, so there's principles of leverage involved in real estate. And so those two things are why it is a great wealth-building vehicle. Now, with respect to your home and home ownership, I mean, that's an asset um, a lot of people have. What do you – maybe give us some quick thoughts on do you own your home or not and paying off your mortgage versus investing money, you know, versus using that additional cash to invest? Yeah, I have an ex extensive analysis on my website on that because most people fall into one of two categories. They're either in the get out of debt category or the use leverage category. Um, mm -hmm. So given low interest rates right now, a lot of people believe that, you know, it's just close or tantamount to free money or very close to it. And so they should be leveraging up their real estate and then redeploying it in other assets. Um, there's other people who come from the cash flow position, which is to reduce their leverage and to reduce their debt. Um, I don't, take the stance that there's an absolute right or wrong. It depends on your situation and your goals. And so what I did on the site, because we could spend this entire call going through it, is I have a whole step-by-step -step instruction manual on there about, um, about that very question, and it takes you through all the questions and gives helps you sort it out for yourself and your situation. Um, 
Todd, if I could ask you, I, and I like what you just shared about going on the site and 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 uh, finding out what category or class you're in, because you're right, it's a huge topic, and I know age plays a lot of to do with that. As our clients get older, it's usually the phase where we're starting to get out of debt and not using leverage. But when you're young and building that wealth, try to use leverage where you can. Uh, and Agreed. you got you talk yeah, and you talk a lot about those principles on your site. Um, let's go to the third asset class for just a minute. Not not that we can't jump around here too, but back to our our, our entrepreneurs on the on the show today. I'd say probably 80% of our listeners at least own a small business on the side. And for tax planning, Matt and I have been teaching that for years that how important that is. But people relying on their business too much for retirement. Um, how do they? I mean. What's your perspective on how they someday exit the business? What are your suggestions? If you're really going to rely on that third asset class in a heavy way, what what are the exit strategies you recommend? You know, I'm going to be straight up with you. I'm not an expert on um, on that trans- business transition strategies. So I really don't have a solid answer for you on that. Uh, that's okay. I, <laughs> You know, uh, the hard part here is I – I uh, people ask me that all the time too, and it, and I uh, there's no right answer. I, I like I like what you've said before. Everybody's different. Um, I would just you know uh, for myself for myself I'm building an asset which is you know it's it's very personal to me, and I hope it continues after I exit the business. And so I would like to have somebody eventually purchase the business from me, or work their way up through the business to acquire it so it has continuity. Um, and then for me also in the exit of my business, I have ways of converting the business into cash flow streams. So there's a variety of cash flow streams that come off the business that have nothing to do with my personal services. And so I'm mapping out sort of a transition strategy as I develop the business, and I think that's an important piece of the equation. But I'm not actually an expert on what are all those various transition strategies or buyout strategies. There are people who specialize in that. You bet. And Todd, let me ask for your indulgence, just so that we don't leave this topic, um, un, uh, uh, leave it open here on the show today. And Matt, maybe we should make a note to have a uh, exit strategy for my business show here in the next few months. We really ought to think about that. But let me say yeah. something here that's really important. And Todd, you just said it. You literally just said it. And I think people don't recognize this enough. And that is your business is very important to you. It's very special to you. It's valuable to you. And I'm going to guarantee the guy that or gal that shows up to buy your business one year or 10 years from now, they're not going to offer you what you think it's worth. And, I, and it, it happens all the time. And too many business owners, if I can make one recommendation here while someone's listening, hopefully on the, on the show today, is, folks, you've got to have a reality check. Your business is never going to be worth, in the eyes of someone else, of what you think it's worth to you. And this relates in a big way to what Todd's talking about, too, about thinking about these other asset classes. Because if the business is your primary retirement plan, and you go to sell the business, even to family members or an outside buyer, or how can I get, you know, sell my assets or the client list or whatever the case is, I guarantee it will always be worth, in your mind, more than it is – uh, worth to a buyer. And we've got to be careful of that because, again, it sets the false expectation that my retirement's taken care of, but it may not be what you think it's worth. Well, you bring, you know, Mark, you bring up a really fun point, though, and that's a great strategy for expanding your business. 
In other words, pay as much as your business is worth. Well, guess what? You can acquire businesses for far less than they're worth. And so oh, it's a great ooh, way good to point. Yeah. yeah, so it's a great way to expand your business and build your business asset is by rec- is through acquisition. Um, and I know that the hard side. I sold when I quote unquote retired at age 35. You know, I put it in air quotations. Um, when I retired at age 35, which was a long time ago, um, I sold the business for what I thought was jump change. And, you know, it was just a a small multiple of earnings, and it was a great cash flow business. Investment management is an extraordinary cash flow business. Um, And it was very stable, and I thought it was a giveaway price. And I remember my walk-away lesson from that was, gosh, what a fool I was to build that thing from scratch. I should have just bought my way in from the beginning and paid a small multiple of earnings or paid it out of earnings over time and gotten a jump start rather than struggling to build the darn thing. Well, great comment. And, and Matt, let me, I know you, you're wanting to say something. You've sent me a note here, but forgive me. We just had a, a question from one of our listeners, and with about eight minutes left in the show, I want to make sure we can address this. And then, Matt, I'll turn the time back to you for a question of Todd. Um, this is, uh, if we stick with the baseball um, analogy, I think this is a fastball. So uh, uh, dig in here, uh, Todd. I, I don't know the answer to this. Um, <laughs> Fran, uh, this is from Fran. She says, any comments? Uh, uh, about the dollar devaluation. I am from South America and survived major devaluations, and we can see the same scenario coming into the U.S. I am building wealth with four principles, uh, tax stra- my business for tax strategy, real estate for cash flow, and then investment in gold, silver, and coins, um, as well as an IUL policy and Roth IRA account, and with the mindset of being frugal and uh, not having shopping compulsion. Good job, Fran. Um, what do you think, uh, Todd, about this dollar devaluation? Is it an issue? Is it a concern to you? Do you talk about it that much? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, one of the reasons it's not spoken about a lot in the United States is because it hasn't been a historical issue for the United States. I believe she, Fran says she was from Argentina. Is that correct, Mark? From South America. She didn't say what country. But, South uh, America. Boy, yeah, Argentina South America would be a good example. Yeah, South America has a long history of currency devaluations. Um, yeah, the, I mean, mathematically, the government cannot pay off its debt. That's, I mean, that's just a math truth. And so there's really only two solutions. One is outright default, and one is in-kind default through inflating your way out of it. Historically, um, the precedent is clear. Any country that has its debt uh, value or denominated in its own currency has taken the most expedient path, which is devaluation of the currency through inflation over time. Um, Given our government's clear policy towards reinflating the economy um, and pursuing debt, that seems a very clear path that we're on. So, Fran, your insights are very welcome because you're bringing a perspective that's not common to the U.S. Um, But for those who have studied economic history extensively, it's a very, very, very serious concern. And, yes, I'm designing my wealth around it. Is that the Puerto Rico plan? You're moving down south to open a taco stand and beach uh, uh, surf shop, and uh, you know it's, <laughs> it's involved funny, moving. I mean, I know you're making a joke out of it, but it's actually there's some really interesting questions when you go into this subject because what we don't know, Fran, uh, you know, and for other listeners on this, is we don't know the exact path by which we'll go there. We know the ultimate outcome ultimately is inflation. That's pretty much a mathematical truth. What we don't know is if we're going to experience severe deflation along the way, and that's what makes this so difficult to deal with, is because the assets that play for one strategy do not play for another. So the question is, 
how do you manage the risk of both directions? Yeah, and it's so scary. And I, I've actually, I have clients right now that are, their game plan as part of, Matt, you were saying your 10-year plan is they want to move out of the country and live in a lower cost of living uh, location with less tax, uh, with lower taxes. And it's crazy, it's a crazy well, world we live in. Yeah, here's the interesting thing, though, Mark, is that if you look at what's going on in the world right now, it's not as simple as the South American example, because back then, it was the, they had one currency that was being destroyed single at a time, and what you've got right now is all the major countries in the world, not all, but the major countries in the world, at least the developed countries, are in a race to the bottom on their currencies. You see that with the euro, you see that with the Japanese yen, you see it with the U.S. dollar, and so... What we're dealing with truly is not precedented. We haven't had the majors go through the path that South America has pursued in the past. And so it's quite a complicated question. You can't exactly use the South American precedent as a precedent for what we can expect to see going forward. And that's why, that's why the idea of just moving out of the country is not quite on track, because you don't know who the winner will be in the end and how all this will play out. Todd, if I could just get work kind of getting to the end of the hour here, but I want to just give you uh, an opportunity to maybe talk about someone who, you know, wants to make a commitment, wants to get starting, taking control of their financial future and, and have financial freedom. Um, what should someone start doing to um, – is it making a plan? Is it making goals, getting educated? I mean, what does someone do to get started to get themselves on the right track? Yeah, the starting point is the wealth plan. You have to develop a wealth plan that literally engineers your way to wealth. Um, and that's the key. And it's very different from what a broker or an advisor would form. They, they call those wealth plans, but they're actually just euphemisms for investment plans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, send, our money, send your money to us and we'll manage it for you. Um, so, you know, you need a wealth plan, a way to engineer your way to wealth using your unique skills, abilities, resources, um, and how you will reach your goal, how you will bridge that gap between where you're at now and where you end, in, end up financially. And then from that plan, you deconstruct that into action steps. And that's what makes the whole process real. It takes it from this amorphous elephant-sized goal that's intangible and you can't achieve into something that breaks down into action steps you can work on every day. And so it starts with a wealth plan and then, it, and then uh, engineering it and then actually taking action. And then from there you can do the rest of what you said, which is the commitment process, the education process, all the others. That's all part and parcel of it. But without a plan, you have nowhere to work off of. Excellent. Thanks so much. Well, and I, I guess welcome. that some of you do is, Todd, we would like to, uh, of course, send people to your site, financialmentor.com. Uh, any new any promotions or uh, places or uh, info that you'd like to get people started with that they should look for that you're doing right now? Anything new going on? Um, no, I've got. I'm going to be developing the Seven Steps to Seven Figures programs, uh, but I'm not trying to promote it or anything. I mean, that's you know, my list will more than buy it. Um, what I'm doing now, I'm coming out with more books, developing that. There's just just a ton of free content. Come in, opt into the list. I give away a free book. I give away um, a whole e-course, a 52-week e-course on wealth building. There's lots of free stuff over there. So just come over and enjoy the value, and eventually, you know, it'll all work out. Well, thank you for joining us today, uh, folks. Todd Tresseter, a financial planner, um, helping clients around the country, author of multiple books in the Financial Mentor series. And we really appreciate you finding some time with us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Mark. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks, Todd. Well, th- thanks. thanks well, I <laughs> well, I've got one last announcement. So, uh, our listeners, please do not hang up yet. We have got this was not in the newsletter today. We weren't prepared to, with the ex- exact link and the. Uh, images, but you'll be hearing about this via email within the week, and that is on March 28th in Orange County, California, we are holding a full-day event called the Tax and Real Estate Summit, and Matt Sorensen, myself, and Kendall Stock are going to be speaking on ways to invest in real estate, save taxes this year, the self-directed strategies, what are the hottest strategies right now in real estate, and it's a full day, and it's only 200 bucks. We're going to give continuing education credit, certificates of attendance. It's going to be awesome. Matt, you're looking forward to it, right? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? March in Orange County. I'm so excited for it. And it's going to be the first time in many years Mark and I have spoke at the same place. It's true. It's true. We're going to have to work out a surf trip for those guests the night before. So thanks, everybody. Keep Absolutely. listening. Look out for that email. Please come out March 28th if you can. And uh, we'll see you next week, Tuesday, for another Mark